This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on making change happen. What kind of change are we talking about? Well, any social or political change that is important to you. Here at Women at Work, we're particularly concerned with the issues that affect women's advancement in the workplace. You know, equal pay, family leave, reproductive health, and the presence, or shall I say absence, of women in the rooms where the policy and laws that shape these issues are actually determined. Which is why we're especially excited to welcome today's guest, twice named by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world and appropriately called one of the most badass feminists of all time by Rolling Stone. Cecile Richards began her career in the labor movement, fighting to improve working conditions and wages for nursing home aides and hotel workers. Organizing turned into campaigning in the effort to elect Texas's first Democratic woman governor, her mother, the amazing Ann Richards. Cecile continued as an activist, starting multiple, still thriving, grassroots organizations, which in Wharton terms also makes her a successful innovator and entrepreneur. All of this experience and her powerful ability to really hear and connect with the people she's trying to serve led her to become the deputy chief of staff to the then newly elected House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi. In 2006, Cecile Richards then became a national hero and a lightning rod when she became the president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, where she advanced and protected women's access to health care for 12 jam-packed years. Since leaving Planned Parenthood, she also became an author. Her book, Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead, was recently released in paperback, and I couldn't be more thrilled to talk about it with her today. Cecile, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be on the show. We couldn't be more excited. I want to start by asking, with all of the things in the world you could have done when you stepped down from Planned Parenthood, why did you write this particular book? Well, Laura, I felt like there was just this moment uh, of women kind of exploding around the country, (laughs) really, you know, being activists, running for office, starting new organizations. And every day it seemed like someone was stopping me on the street or on the subway and asking, okay, what should I do next? And so I thought instead of trying to talk to every single person that I met, I would I would put it in a book. And and it's it was really fun. I actually encourage your listeners and women to write books because I do feel like our stories haven't been told as much. And then it became, of course, a great vehicle for going around the country and listening to what's on women's minds. Uh, so it's actually been it has been really a joy, and um, and I'm glad I did it. <laughs> I'm glad you did it, too. I not only loved reading every word, but I've already ordered it for my teenager, who seriously, oh. on her on the SAT, she was frustrated because she couldn't sign up for future career as activist. Really? No, well, that's, um, I mean, I think for these young teenage girls now, um, girls, women, there are so many opportunities, and I, it is exciting to see them at an early age, and particularly in high school, begin to imagine 
you know, all the things that they could do. I think it was very different for young women growing up today than it was certainly when I was a kid in Texas. So um, good for her. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> yes. And speaking of when you were growing up in Texas, one of the things I loved in the book was that you talked about, um, of course, your mom, but also some key things that you learned that have shaped why you've been an activist for your whole life. And this kind of internal belief that you can impact the world around you. How did that become real for you? Well, I think for um, when I was growing up in Texas, my you know, it was a time um, not only in the state but certainly across the country where a lot of people were becoming active in movements. And whether it was the civil rights movement and the fight for um, voting rights, whether it was integrating the schools, and then of course for my women, for my mother, it was a women's movement because for her, growing you know, growing up in Waco, Texas, and being what they called then a housewife in Dallas. She really didn't have a lot of other options. And so now this opportunity for that she could run for office and then, of course, become governor, to me, really showed that, um, you know, you can kind of do anything if you just put your mind to it. I think for more and more women, um, to me, that is kind of what I try to write about in the book. And it's a theme, which is it's just time that women start before they're ready. I think too often as women, we wait until the perfect moment, till the kids are the right age or mm-hmm. have the right degrees or all the other sort of must-haves. And it's exciting to me to think now that you know, young women are just kind of jumping in before being asked. That to me was what I learned in Texas, and I, I really – feel like that I'm seeing it every day with women around around the country and around the world. We've talked about it a lot on Women at Work, how to help women entertain possibilities that they don't feel 100% ready for. Um, right. You did that when you stepped into Planned Parenthood, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, it's funny, Laura, when I go around to do book events and you know, which I, I t- call them, they're more like tent revivals. It's just women <laughs> coming together and, you know, wanting to talk about things that, you know, how their lives are going. And the, the question I get asked the most is something I write about in the book, which is that I almost didn't go to my interview at Planned Parenthood because, of course, I was sure that I, that I was not competent, didn't have the experience to do the job. Um, this is not a problem that men usually, you know, face. But for me, I was just, I was, I, I had all the reasons, and of course, so I, right before the interview, I, I almost canceled, but I ran into a coffee shop and did what any grown woman would do. I called my mother, <laughs> and she, she said, Cecile, you know, this is, Planned Parenthood is such an important organization. This is the kind of opportunity that you'll always regret if you don't just try. And one thing she, and so she, of course, she pushed me to go, and of course, it changed my life. But the other thing mom always said, because she she tried a lot of things that were that were not that she, you know, carved sort of a new path. The thing she always said to me was like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And if you, I think as women sometimes, instead of just having all this list of worries, just really imagine, well, what is the worst thing? And if you can deal with that, then you should just go for it. Right. So if the worst thing is that you hear no, you will live. But the best thing wasn't just that it changed your lives. It changed millions of women's lives, Cecile. So I'd like to extend a big thank you. Oh, well, listen, it was the honor of a lifetime to work for Planned Parenthood. It's an organization that does change people's lives and trajectories. And I I think one of the interesting things that I learned, Laura, over the years was that one of the big reasons that women are and, and, and men are so committed to Planned Parenthood is they sort of never forget their own experience. Even me, I mean, I remember mm-hmm. I went, went away to college to Rhode Island. I'd never been out of Texas. I didn't know 
anything. And the one place I could go for reproductive health care for, for birth control was Planned Parenthood in Rhode Island. And I, I feel like I could almost describe the room, the nurse, you know, the whole experience. And I do think it is an, an organization that is there for folks when they are just kind of figuring out their own health care and sometimes need someone to talk to that's not their parents or maybe they don't have a friend or that they don't have insurance and they need a place that's affordable. So it's, it's a really fascinating and important organization that's been around for more than 100 years. It, it is incredible. And it's also an amazing source of accurate, reliable information in a world where finding accurate information becomes more and more elusive. No, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things I learned when I when I went uh, to Planned Parenthood was not only that we provided health care to all these folks, but actually we were the biggest provider of accurate sex education in the country, something that is woefully um, underappreciated, I think, in, in our school systems where young people, they just need to know information to keep themselves healthy and safe. And that is something, as you say, it is uh, can be very elusive, particularly for young people, young people who are going online, just desperate for information. And I, I do think right now, particularly when it comes to women's health, Planned Parenthood is a critical place to go to for uh, factual, you know, not non-political information about the care you might need. Absolutely. And also one of the big projects that you did there was you really built out and developed the web platform and the mobile version. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. You know, it's Planned Parenthood has been around for a long, long time. And so, of course, we were created by or founded by, you know, scrappy you know, um, <laughs> women around the country who just wanted to, to make sure that women had the health care they needed. And so it's somewhat the organization is somewhat, you know, it's like in every nook and cranny of America, but not necessarily unified in every way. And when the web came along and when I, you know, was starting Planned Parenthood, I said, wow, this is a huge opportunity now that if you live in, if you live in Indiana or you live in rural Texas and you can actually now type your zip code in and find Where's the Planned Parenthood I can go to? Or better yet, maybe I can order birth control online if I can't get to a clinic. And then, of course, designing things for mobile phones, which is where young people, if you, I know probably where your daughter is, <laughs> certainly where my three children Too many live. hours a day, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and then we have to, so, and therefore we have to find how do you use that mobile technology, uh, you know, for good. One of the things we did right before I left, which I just loved, was, um, in response to young women's desires for better, better, um, a better app, we did a period app that actually helped you both track your period uh, because a lot of the, the apps were created just to help women who were trying to get pregnant. Well, for a lot of young women, you're not trying to get pregnant and having an app that helps you remember, uh, remember to take your birth control, you know, mm -hmm. gives you all your options was really important. And that was just exciting to kind of demystify uh, a topic that is, listen, still today, too often taboo. Absolutely. It also sounds like this was, you know, going back to that you stepped into Planned Parenthood, not 100% sure that you had the skills. This theme of connecting, seeing what's happening in the nooks and crannies and connecting it, this wasn't the first time in your life you did this. Well, you know, it's funny. Coming from Texas, which is a, is far different from where I live. I live in New York City now. You know, I think it really did give me a perspective of what it's like to be um, sort of out of the mainstream. And, you know, women and people sometimes say, wow, how did all these tough women come out of Texas? Like my mom, <laughs> Barbara Jordan, um, Molly Ivins. 
you know, in a way, I mean, women in Texas, they're the ones who settled the frontier, started the first public schools, the, the libraries. Women in Texas never had anything easy. They really <laughs> had to build it. And I do think that's part of what I really have to thank my mother and my God, my two grandmothers were so tough and, you know, independent uh, that that I learned from an early age that that's really this is this one life you have and you really have to make the most of it yourself. And there's nothing that that gives me greater joy. And I think this is as Ann Richards daughter than seeing other women succeed, you know, get mm-hmm. the health care they need, get the wages they deserve, stand up for themselves. And and I do think, Laura, that this moment in time in this, in, the, in this country is a unique one, because for the first time I'm seeing women of all walks of life, all different backgrounds, different parties, different you know geographies, taking joy in the success uh, and advancement of women. Absolutely. There's an, it, you can feel the energy in the air. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we all want to see that energy sustained. So I have a couple of questions for you. Actually, I have three pages of questions for you. But in particular, <laughs> you've been... Um, fighting the good fight, really organizing and mobilizing to make other people's lives better since you were a kid. How do you stay motivated? Because we see this joyous energy, particularly after the election, seeing all those women sworn in in the House. Um, You've also witnessed your fair share of defeats and challenges, and yet you keep coming back with this great big smile and inspiring other people. How do you stay motivated through the ebb and flow of successes and challenges? Well, I think I have a couple of thoughts, Laura. One is I have to just dispel this notion that my life is this constant struggle of, you know, fighting for right and, you know, it's really tough and miserable. I, my life is very joyful. And, you know, <laughs> as you said, I spent my first uh, several years right out of college working with and trying to organize and support women who made the minimum wage, you know, cleaning hotel rooms, uh, taking care of. Uh, the elderly in nursing homes. Uh, these are very tough jobs. They pay minimum wage, usually very low benefits, if any. And these are women who had no option about what they did with their life. And for me, that was always the most important lesson, that if, if I had a choice of what I did for a living, um, getting to you know be in a line of work that actually helped other people mm-hmm. and made me feel like life was worth living and work was important um, is a huge thing. I do think, though, to be fair, this is a tough time for a lot of communities and, and for women. And it's important that we take the victories, you know, where we can and support other women and lift other women up. But I, I know during the last two years when I was at Planned Parenthood and, of course, we were facing being defunded and um, it was really uncertain what the fate of many of our health centers would be. I remember a friend of mine said, you know, we'll just figure out each day you stay open, what will that what will that matter? And I, 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 did the, I did the calculation. So I, I figured out that every single day Planned Parenthood doors were open and we were not defunded. We served approximately 5,814 people. Oh, my God. So, That's amazing. So, well, what a great thing to be able to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I don't have to solve the problems for the universe. I don't have to figure out everything. But if I can just keep fighting this day, keep these doors open – um, open to help to all you know our health centers and our patients, then that many people are going to get served, and they probably otherwise in many areas wouldn't get services. And that 
you know what? That was a great motivation. That and, really kept me going. And that and was eventually we won. And that so, was just yeah. on a Tuesday. Never mind all those days added up. <laughs> By the way, yes, you're right. you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is the extraordinary Cecile Richards, uh, amongst other things, author of Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead. So, Cecile, when you were talking about the joyous and impactful work of organizing, it seems like that was a fundamental life experience for you, that you learned things while you did it. Could you tell us, especially as, you know, I'm my own teenager who wants to go out there and pitch in. How do you, um, how do you start and what did you learn by doing it? What words for the wise could you share? Well, I think there's, uh, this is another reason I wrote my book, because I think sometimes a lot of women now come up to me with this sort of stricken look in their face, like asking what they should do as if there was one thing they could do and somehow everything will get better or or (laughs) the pain will go away. And I do think it's really important that it, it just to say to women that whatever it is, you know, doing more than what you're doing now, um, taking some risks, uh, whether it's running for office, volunteering on a campaign. Maybe you've never done that. I remember my first campaign. I was probably your daughter's age and just, you know, volunteering for a phone bank. Even if you didn't really know what you were doing, you met the most amazing people along the way. Uh, and and you and you learn some skills that otherwise you wouldn't have, and maybe it led you to your career or where you wanted to go to college or a whole host of other things. Because uh, I think it's important not to think that like there is one thing, but I do believe you know women are the bulk of volunteers in this country, and it is the way that we build community, we build our skills, and and I think we we make a huge difference. The other thing that I'm really a believer, and I know we kind of mentioned this earlier in the intro, is like, I was never a business person. I really almost wish I I always wish I were because I love, I had sort of have an entrepreneurial spirit. I Clearly. <laughs> nonprofits. And I think that that was a great experience for me in back in Texas was seeing a problem I thought needed solving. It was, it was what was happening in the public schools. And then without any idea what I was doing, quitting my job, starting a nonprofit. Um, and it's been going on now for um, more than a couple of decades. And I, I do think that um the chance for young people uh, young women or not just young women to start their own thing gather up a bunch of friends say you you know pick a name uh, design your letterhead and go to town and you'll learn more that way uh, whether it's you eventually go into business or run an organization than anything else that you'll ever do you talked about in those days it's great advice by the way um you talked about in particular this it came up multiple times in the book this idea of if there were two or more you were there and it was worth going talk to me about what that was and why that was like a, a standing truism for you well, I think that, um, again, this is particularly true right now, Laura. It's kind of funny. I feel like in many ways maybe maybe my life has come full circle. I think right now what I hear from most women is simply, what should I be doing? What can I do? And so my one of my friends who works in the disability community, was I loved what he said. You know, his, his, his uh, motto was, I'm going to do it even if it's wrong. And I think sometimes that can be liberating because there isn't necessarily one solution to whatever it is. But if you're concerned about what's happening in your public school system, it may need you just need to get like three or four other parents or moms or students together and go to the go to the uh, PTA meeting or go to the school board meeting. And I do think that the idea that somehow you have to start with this enormously well thought out idea with 
thousands of people marching behind you is just a fallacy. That's not how small businesses start. That's not, I mean, that's not, that big businesses usually start out as small businesses mm-hmm. and big organizations start out with an idea that someone feels so strongly about they can't sleep at night unless they do something. Um, there was a great, a great, uh, I think it was a Lily Tomlin line, which is, she said, I looked around and said, why isn't someone doing about this, something about this? And I realized that I was someone. And I do think right now uh, I'm seeing women all across the country starting new organizations without any experience just because they feel like they have to make a difference. So this is a good time to just, um, again, you know, start before you're ready. <laughs> Indeed. Along with that, I know that when businesses start, um, some people have a great idea and they want to bring it to other people. But we also hear from a lot of successful innovators and entrepreneurs, creators, designers, that the best solutions come when you listen to people and you find out what their needs are. What's the What's the balance of this? And how did you learn the balance as you were starting to organize? No, it's such an important point, Laura, and I'm I'm really glad you raised it because a lot of times people ask me, you know, what does it take to be a great leader? And I always say the same thing. It takes being a good listener. You know, people don't do things for your reasons. They do things for their own reasons. And so I think the, you know, and one of the things that I had the really good fortune to do was spend several years listening to women about what they needed, what was happening in their families. And, and that's, it's really what I'm doing now as well, because um, a lot of folks in this country, no one ever listens to them. And uh, this is, you know, I, I hear people say sometimes, well, why are people doing things against their own interests? And I, I, I kind of always want to say, well, do you know what their own interests are? Because I think sometimes we just make assumptions and we don't really, don't really listen. So yes, whether it's starting an organization Starting a, starting a business, um, starting a group, it has to be something that relates that relates to other people and where they feel like they're they're being heard, they're being seen, um, or their needs are being met. And I wish, I mean, not to get too political on this, but this is where I feel like we are making a big mistake in this country mm-hmm. of thinking that we know what everyone else wants or needs. And I I, I feel like that's one of the reasons that people have been somewhat disillusioned with a political system is there's a lot of people talking at us, but not a lot of people listening uh, to others. And I hope that we're learning that in, in, you know, in these, in these really kind of tough times. Oh, it's critical. And it's something that we, we talk a lot about in the workplace of Mm -hmm. that part of creating inclusive workplaces comes from the idea that we're making it, we're not just having different people in the room, but we're making it so that we hear them. Their voices can be heard. They're respected. Or some would say, it's not just that they're in the room, they're invited to dance. No, that's absolutely right. It's funny. I mean, this is a, a, not a business example, but (laughs) when I was at Planned Parenthood, you know, what, when I first started, every time I would go to a, you know, an event in the evening or a, luncheon for Planned Parenthood, I felt like every woman of a certain age would come up to me and say, where are the young women? Why it, you know, and, and sometimes why don't they appreciate all the things we did and the fights we made? And they're not, you know, they're, they, they just, um, they don't care. And I said, well, maybe we need to invite them in and actually listen to them. And we spent the last 12 years investing in young people as our patients uh, we asked them what they wanted. That's how we developed so many things on, you know, 
use digital first strategy because that's where they they are and then we invited them into the organization and that is really how we grew from 3 million supporters to more than 12 million was by inviting young people in but as you say you can't invite them in and then expect to just continue on business as usual i mean it was young people who really forced all kinds of conversations that sometimes don't happen expansion of services um i mean many of the many of the new things we do at planned parenthood is the directly result of having an, uh, a, a huge group of young people join the organiza- organization and letting them tell us what they need um but uh, you're right it's um it's no good to be in the room if you actually don't feel like you have a role. <laughs> right. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is the extraordinary Cecile Richards. Uh, amongst other things, author of Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead. I love that you're talking about this difference between, you know, from, from that perspective, it was about, in Planned Parenthood, it was about hearing young voices. What did they need? Where were they oriented? What were their challenges? You also learned to do this when you you were um, working on justice for janitors. Um, I was so touched in the book by how you learned to listen and learn about people's experiences that were so different from your own. Was it hard at first? No, I mean, it's such an amazing um, kind of window into folks. Uh, I mean, when I worked in Los Angeles in particular, and it was very interesting, particularly apropos of what's happening these days, you know, these were women and men um, mostly who'd come from Central America who were earning minimum wage working at night. So they were really the unseen workforce. No one, you know, they worked in very fancy buildings downtown Los Angeles, but most folks were gone at five or six. And these folks started to work um, when they were all gone. And so you really had to seek them out to hear their stories. And they were the most amazing, courageous people. These were folks who had already risked so much. Uh, to to travel from El Salvador, Guatemala, and now here they were, had finally gotten to to Los Angeles, and now they were working in you know no benefits, minimum wage jobs, off almost always working two jobs, and they were the most courageous people I'd ever met, willing to risk everything they had, which was not that much, in order to see if they could you know earn a living wage, and eventually they won um, because they organized and they stayed with it. But I really I learned so much about the resilience of folks who have already who would do anything, um, not only to better themselves, but most importantly, to better their families, because, of course, most of them were sending money back home um, to folks who had it even worse off than they did. It's amazing to see what you discovered by tuning into people that so many other people didn't see. Yeah, I mean, and this is again, I feel like I feel so grateful for the life I've been able to live because I did have a choice what I did for a living and to have the, the uh, opportunity to sit in people's living rooms or um, out on the work, you know, on the workbench when they're taking a break and just hear about their lives it really restores your faith in humanity. And then, of course, to see what they would be willing to do for each other is um, it's quite amazing. I do think that's that at, at our core People really, they value community, they value family, they value each other, which is why it's very hard for me, and I'm sure I know a lot Mm -hmm. of other people, 
to see what's happening on the borders now. Yeah, it's a heroism that isn't being understood or celebrated. Um, Agreed. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm going to continue my discussion with Cecile Richards in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood and the author of Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead. Before the break, we learned a lot about Cecile's background and her amazing perspective on how we all can make change. So, Cecile, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you so much. So if you don't mind, I want to dive into some of the personal things, because I also think they're an amazing inspiration for us. It sounds like you've had the benefit of a remarkable life partner. <laughs> well, my, so my husband, Kirk, who I, we've been, we started out as organizers together. We met in New Orleans organizing hotel workers. Um, and, you know, as my mother said, he was probably the only person with a respectable, like, you know, uh, outfit and, uh, you know, actually wore lace-up shoes instead of loafers. There's a few things that kind of distinguished him. And he had a real, uh, you know, he had a real uh, career in publishing before he became an organizer. But we, we fell in love and we moved around the country as these sort of itinerant organizers. And then he came and helped my mother uh, when she ran for governor, and which was sort of a family all come home, you know, everybody drop what you're doing <laughs> right. here in Texas. And uh, we have these three kids who, of course, are, I think, amazing. I love them so much. They've been kind of the joy of our life. And yeah, I was very lucky. I, I realize, um, I mean, Kirk, I think for, you know, I don't know, families have to do it in different ways. But for us, someone always had to be the mom. And I write about this in my book. I just think that there's just somebody who's got to be remembering to get the kids picked up and take them to the piano or um, make sure they've got lunch made in the morning. And, you know, oftentimes that was Kirk instead of me. And I really am grateful for that partnership. Um, yeah, I kind of got a, I think I kind of got lucky. And Kirk <laughs> would say he comes out the best in the book of anybody, which I think is probably true. It is a loving and glowing portrait. <laughs> it, 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 and I was a, a little envious and also amazed because it's not just that he's special. I think readers need to understand he was also special in the time in which this was happening. Um, we're pe we're pretty much peers in this regard. And um, for a man to be so willing to support your career and be so flexible and willing to take on domestic duties was really remarkable. Did he get grief? Was it a hard thing for him to learn to do? You know, that's so funny. I don't know that he ever got grief from anyone, but I, you know, he... Uh, his mother was very strong, a woman I never had the good, good fortune to know. I think he came from a, a long line of strong women. Um, of course, he worked for my mother when she or you know worked on her campaign, so he wasn't shy around women who had strong opinions <laughs> and who he had to had to support. Um, but I do look. I think partly what's happened, and this is where I'm quite hopeful about the world and even the country, is that I think. Increasingly, men are understanding the importance of their daughters having every opportunity that their sons have. So we have we have three kids, two daughters and a, and a son. And you had and, twins in that mix. And we and yeah, yes, exactly. And one <laughs> one we did like really fast, our boy and girl twins. 
And I, I do think Kirk seeing our kids grow up and recognizing the double standard sometimes that, that the girls face or the extra effort they had to put in to, to succeed, I think that's, that's um, been an education for him, candidly. And I don't think – I think that I, I am hopeful, and then this is to extrapolate from Kirk. I don't know if this is true for men in general, but I do feel like more and more men are realizing – that they have to stand up for their daughter's rights if they haven't, even if they didn't really understand it in their own marriages or in their own partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me hopeful is to see dads on the, on the sidelines cheering on their daughters in sports or um, beaming when they are the, you know, valedictorian. Uh, these are things that really are a generational change and it's, it's been exciting to see it. I mean, I've just have seen it in this little microcosm of our own family. It's also wonderful to see dads who um, happily inhabit the role of being a tender caregiver and being yeah. invested in domestic life. And um, so it's another way in which he's giving your kids an additional gift. Um, one of the things, though, that I, a lot of women have talked about, including on this show, is that mm-hmm. it can be hard to make room for to let the man in your life inhabit that space. Mm-hmm. Was that something you had to learn how to do, or you were really happy to let somebody come in? Well, I don't want to paint this as some, like, you know, this is all rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it wasn't, I don't think Kirk, you know, sprung forth as this fully evolved feminist who, you know, knew how to do all the household chores. He still can't cook. Uh, I mean, it's not like there's a lot of things that I have, um, that I definitely took the took the, the lion's share of. But I, it was just simply impractical uh, for him not to take on some of these things. I, you know, whether it was my job working on Capitol Hill, which for anyone who's done that knows, you know, you don't stay until the boss leaves, and that could be two or three in the morning if you're voting on the floor, um, or whether it was starting a new organization. And definitely when I took the job at Planned Parenthood, it was a 24-7 job mm-hmm. for about 12 years. But uh, – and Kirk was there. So, but I think sometimes too, and every probably every woman listening to this show who has a partner who's raising a family, or uh, it, it's that you, you things just can't be perfect anymore. You just have to kind of let go. And um, I remember my mom. My mom said, you know, that please, please, uh, when when they buried her, not to have. She didn't want her tombstone to read. She kept a really clean house. <laughs> Um, and I think that, so I think we all, you know, just felt like, look, you were put on this earth to make, to make a difference. And if you were so lucky to find that, then that's what you should focus on and let the rest of the things kind of take care of themselves. Um, so it certainly isn't perfect. Um, but I, I have been fortunate and I think, I hope my kids have seen that there are ways to share responsibilities um, and in fact, all three of my kids are great cooks, which was really fun. And another, you know, including my son, Daniel, who can make a pie to kind of really, I, I put him in competition with anyone. <laughs> and I was pleased to hear that you gave a little attention in the book to the butter versus lard thing. I'm a butter Huge. person myself. 100%. I mean, I've done it all the different ways. That's just, that's the way I'm going. Um one of the things that you also talked about in the book when you talked about raising your kids when they were young was, yeah. and you did it with some humor, but I thought that, that you know, there's humor without truth and some real insight there of what your learn, kids learned by being with you campaigning. So in other words, right. when they would come to work with you. Yeah. No, I mean, and again, a lot of moms uh, in particular ask me that these days, like what to do with their kids, like in this troubled time or if there's issues they they're concerned about, and to me, it's like bring them along the way because obviously 
our kids learn not from what we say. They learn what's important from what we do. And there's no better experience like that. But I remember, you know, I, and I write about in the book one time, Daniel, you know, who came home from school in third grade, they had asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and at the time, I was an organizer. Um, I was working on, on the Hill for Nancy Pelosi, and we were fighting on all kinds of important issues. Kirk was a union organizer in the middle of so many battles on behalf of working people. And so when Daniel came home with his paper, he'd written that he wanted to be a potter, which I was like, <laughs> that's amazing. Daniel's never even like showed any artistic interest. And I said, well, Dan, um, Daniel, why do you want to be a potter? And he said, well, because nobody doesn't like a potter. And I realized then that, you know, what the, the life he was experiencing with me and Kirk was a bit of, you know, everything's a struggle. You're always in the middle of a, of a battle. So it's not all perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, he, but he grew up to be a chemist and an activist. So maybe he has the best, best of both worlds. Yeah, he might have struck just the right balance. Exactly. <laughs> that question, though, of who's happy, who's not, the amazingly thick skin that you um, have to have when you go into this kind of work. Um, it seems like passion is the balance for it, though, that even though, you're, you know, people are coming after you, um, you're motivated because you care so much about what you're working towards. Yeah, for sure, if you're not really motivated by it. And I'm sure that, I mean, I think that there's a parallel for starting a business. If you're not just, you know, completely intent on making it a success, I think that's probably... I mean, there's probably some research about people that succeed and people that fail. I think you just you just have to have it in your heart that this is what you're going to do. And that was the joy of being at Planned Parenthood, was just saying, boy, when we can expand healthcare access to people, that's worth all the slings and arrows that may may come uh, may come my way. It doesn't make it any easier um, when you see your own kids, or in my my case, seeing my mother, mm-hmm. you know, who was oh my gosh, they said everything about her. You name it. And that wasn't easy. Um, but I do feel like if you're really committed to what you believe in, that gets you through a lot. One of the quotes um, from your mom, you were referring to your mom's campaign and mm-hmm. a couple lessons that you learned. So one was you can't win unless you compete. And we were talking about that earlier, like get in the game. Yeah. But the other thing that you said, and and I'd be interested to have you help us connect us to what's going on in politics now is that it's a contest of will between the satisfied and those who are passionate about what could be made better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what, I mean, that was what my mom was about. She she was always, and she was a very impatient person, probably <laughs> probably because she's been, you know, for many years of her life, she'd taken care of kids, she'd made the perfect meals, she'd redecorated the house. She, as she said, if it was in the glossy magazine, she had done it. And <laughs> then she realized that there was more to life. And she was very impatient about the opportunity for the opportunity to do more and became so fixated on the fact that, like, this is this is the one life you have. So you what else? What are you waiting for in a way? And I do think that's about having passion and feeling like um, and I think it's what encourages people to to take risks to run for office when they never thought they would, like all these mm-hmm. young women who just did, or to start organizations or quit your job and go work on a campaign. Those are the things that I just feel like um, that's part of the human spirit. And if you feel like, whether it's your own circumstance or, frankly, whether it's the circumstance of your community, feeling like things could be better, that's enormously motivating. But look, as you know, change is hard. Mm-hmm. People resist change, whether you're running 
a, a big organization, whether you're trying to change things in government, um, it is uh, the the entropy is enormous, and so you have to be willing to take a lot of like bruises if you're actually going to make big change, but it's 100% worth it. It also seems like it was prescient for what's going on in politics now, that especially for women trying Mm -hmm. to get more advocacy and having women's voices in the room, that there's the notion of a zero-sum game and who loses power and who gains power, who's comfortable with the status quo and who wants to see change. And it feels like in big parts of the country, if not in, you know, every part, it's falling along gender lines or around gender issues. Are you seeing the same thing? Oh, yeah, Laura. And I mean, this is like an entire show we'll talk about (laughs) because I think it is quite fascinating. So I've been I've been, you know, as I said, listening to women around the country. You know, we are coming up on 100 years of women's suffrage um, next year. Now, of course, there was that was just for white women. It took longer for women of color to get to earn the right to vote. And I think it's important to remember that. But if you look at what's happened in the last 100 years, women got the right to vote. They got the right to reproductive um, decision making and uh, and healthcare. Okay, and so today women are almost half the workforce. We are more than half the college students. Same with medical school. Same with uh, law school. Um, and in fact, women are. And I mean, women are now 54% of the voters mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, they're just so. And in every industry, women are are entering. And so I think it makes it. It is a very, it's a time of enormous disruption. It's not like when my mother was in the women's movement. That's when women were just kind of like, you know, throwing back the curtains and going, oh my gosh, this whole world is open there for us. But this is a moment in which I think, will women, you know, who've been trying, we've all been trying to retrofit ourselves into businesses and a workplace that was not built for us. No Mm -hmm. maternity care, no child care. This is a time where I think women are saying, wait. Maybe we could actually make this equal so that we had a fair chance of competing in the workforce, of of entering business, of doing whatever we wanted to do, and really talking about structural change in a way that's never happened. And I think that that is going to happen. Uh, It's a matter of time. But this is a moment where women have enormous opportunities to make structural change um, in government, in society, that allows us to be equal. And I don't think that means that other people can't be equal too, but it is time for women to get really more of a fair fair break. Here, here. This is Women at Work, if you haven't figured that out already. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking to the extraordinary Cecile Richards, author of Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead. So, Cecile, coming back to this issue of there, it is time for change, and there are lots of women who are working on change. Yep. When you think about but I know that there's no single answer to where should we put our time. Mm-hmm. So in talking about, you know, there's working on elections, and then there's also working to see what happens when people are in office, you know, the right. outcomes of that work. And hopefully this is all going on simultaneously. When you think about the relationship between these efforts, do you see a natural one? Should we all be working together on this stuff? Well, I think that, look, women are going to do different things. And also, as we know, women are not a monolith. But when I think when you look at fundamental things that need to be changed, we need equal political representation. Okay? Mm-hmm. We're now, I think, 78th in the world, right behind Somalia in women's political representation. So having more people, having more women in the room, 
uh, is just fundamentally changes the conversation. I saw that on Capitol Hill fighting mm-hmm. for things like maternity benefits and family planning. Like our, our motto was, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that was pretty <laughs> much true uh, for women. I think, though, also, um, so, so I think that that representation matters. And then real policy change. You know, what would it be like if maternity care wasn't treated as a nuisance by our employment system, but actually this is a fundamental right that everyone needed and that affected millions of American workers? I think there just there are there are issues that have always been treated as quote unquote women's issues that I think are just frankly fundamental economic business issues. Right, like but dental yeah. care. Why isn't it seen that way? No. Well, it's, I mean, look, listen, before the Affordable Care Act, maternity benefits were absolutely not standard mm-hmm. in insurance plans. And that, that, was, a, that was a revolutionary mm-hmm. um, shift. But I think the other place, because I don't want to say it's all, it, we, can't, we have to do all these things at the same time, like <laughs> women do, right? We, right. Can juggle, we can juggle, you know, homework and dinner and... And cook um, on four burners. And everything, exactly. But I think the other place where we absolutely have to have representation and women at the table is in the corporate sphere. And mm-hmm. it's not simply, I know, I know we've all looked at very depressing statistics about women CEOs in the highest ranks of business, but it's not just at the top. It's in middle management. Mm-hmm. It's on the boards. Those are the folks that make decisions. And I really, um, I hope in all of this moment of change that we can push in a more concerted way to have women's representation in the decision-making rooms, because that is how we will have better benefits, more mm-hmm. opportunities for women to participate in the workforce, and more women hired um, at the most important in the most important levels of business. And I honestly, I don't think that has happened yet. Oh no, it's why we have a show every week because we're working on it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and one of the things you know, it's funny. This I was I was speaking at Princeton last week, and this. Um, which is no competition for Wharton at all. But <laughs> I was uh, a young man was was asking me, you know, well, what what can young what can men do? And I said, well, when a woman speaks up in a room, um, and a, whether it's about pay equity, whether it's about a leave policy, whether it's about sexual harassment, or just like how it feels to work on a job, stand up. Don't wait for the other women to do that. And I do think we have to invite men in to help solve these problems. Because honestly, as we know, racism isn't a problem of people of color. It's a problem with white people. <laughs> right. And the same that sexism is fundamentally not a, a problem that women created. And I I, uh, I do believe that, that there are men who they do want to do better and maybe they need some help along the way. But I think we have to say this is what we expect now. And it means standing with other for, folks in the, work, in the workforce, on, in the, on the corporate board, whatever it is, don't just make the women be the ones who raise the issues. No, get in there and raise them and make room for and and in, yeah. enhance them, empower them, reinforce it. Right. I mean, actually, we were talking this the other day. I mean, now whenever I go on a panel or anything else, I you know I really ask beforehand who else is going to be on that panel because mm-hmm. I'm not going to be on a panel where it's only white women. Uh, the same way I ask men to say like, don't be on a panel with only men, right? That's something, that's a powerful statement you can make, not because, just because you might not appear and they have to do that, because it changes the way people think about the room and they think about the, about their, about their speakers and their programs. Absolutely. And each of us can do that in small ways and in big ways. And it all just begins to change the culture because we have to have that 
kind of culture change, and women can't do it on their own. No, and it's one of the things, we, we just ran a big conference ourselves in Wharton People Analytics, and mm-hmm. we were really diligent throughout the process of trying to build as diverse a conference as possible. And I will acknowledge it's work, because people's sure. networks reveal it's like yeah. people network surface bring to the surface the people they know who are usually right. like them so for conference organizers for employers for the people that are looking for talent out there it is work but it's work that's worth it oh it totally changes everything i mean you know i like to think i've been doing this work a long time but and that i'm kind of you know self-aware or aware but the difference it made at planned parenthood to create a board the board of directors it is really the highest you know authorities volunteer jobs in, in the country of folks in gender race sexual orientation different backgrounds it just changes the conversation it made us a better organization so in a completely self-serving way <laughs> that diversity in business and in in um, in government mm-hmm. and in organizing, it is it inures to the benefit not just of the participants but of the people you're there to serve. It, and I just have seen it through. It yes, and we see it everywhere. And we need more of it. So when we think about engaging the unengaged, getting voices heard, right? We, when you weigh out, where are we going to be more effective initially? Trying to change people's minds or engage the unengaged? Um, you know, this is a topic that, as you can imagine, people have very different feelings about. And I I feel like when we lead with our values, that maybe that's how people's minds change and they mm-hmm. see, they hear other people's stories, that we're able to create empathy. But I also believe in our democracy right now, there are millions of people either who don't vote because they don't they're not registered to vote they Mm -hmm. don't understand the process they aren't engaged um or they're just turned off i feel like particularly for women uh this is a really important or group of people to be talking to and that's what i've been focused on is how do we make sure that issues that women are thinking about every single morning when they wake up like how am i going to take care of my mom when Mm -hmm. i'm going to go to go to work and i have no family leave or I just ran my, – my daycare just shut down. How can I continue to keep my job at Walmart and also have a place for my kids to stay? I mean, this, the list goes on. Fundamental economic issues, uh, workplace issues. And I think that we have to force these into the political water and the conversation in every way at the presidential level and all the way down so that women begin to feel and understand the huge impact that government has on their lives. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of that. So that's my focus: is not try to convince people who are dead set in a certain, uh, certain, um, you know, sort of political mindset, but actually try to make politics relevant for women. Uh, and I think I and this is where I just have to give a shout out to some of the amazing young women who ran for office and were elected. Is I think they're holding, you know, they're pulling the curtains back and they're saying, "Look, yes, I did this." You could do it, too. And how exciting. <laughs> it's thrilling to see them up there. So It really is. For those of us who have the benefit of a microphone or who want to put our energies into helping to engage the unengaged, um, right. what would you suggest we do? Where can we start? I mean, I think that you can start it, particularly in the, in the, in the civic space. I think there are so many organizations working on engaging women, whether it's on a specific issue. Again, I don't want to start listing all the issues. <laughs> uh, there's so many, um, and I'm sure your listeners have 
you know, there's an abundance of different opportunities, but they're all looking for volunteers. Sign up. Sign up for an organization that maybe you've never even worked with before. Maybe it's an environmental group. Go and volunteer on a campaign, your local city council race, your school board race, any of these things. Not only will you feel better, it's better than yelling at the television set or you know, just <laughs> for sure. you know, being frustrated. And, and you'll actually meet people who will then connect you with other folks in your community. Um, and I do think that this next 18 months for women is going to be so fascinating. We have a record number of women running for office, r- running for president raising issues that have never been raised before. And I think this is a time for women to feel their civic power because they'll be the majority of voters in in the next election cycle, and we may as well make it count. Absolutely. So with the little bit of time that we have left, and especially with these 18 critical months ahead of us, um, you certainly don't sit by the sidelines ever. (laughs) What's up next for you? So I've been, I'm glad you asked. I've been working with a bunch of other women around the country doing this listening tour, kind of aggregating women. And at the end of this month in April, we're going to launch a new women's um, organization engagement um, to help women who are trying to figure out exactly the answer to the question you just asked, Laura, which is how can I do more? What are other women doing to be successful around issues they care about and around being civically engaged? So um, folks can follow me on Twitter. They can follow me on, on uh, Instagram. And uh, later this month, we'll be, we'll be launching. And I'm excited. I think, it's a, I think this is just a really, really wonderful time for women, um, again, to just work together to, to build the kind of country that we want to live in. And, uh, and it's going to change life for our daughters and our sons. Cecile, I can't thank you enough, A, for all the work you've done, and all the work you're going to do, but in particular for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having me, Laura. I really appreciate it, and I love that you do this show. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. And and if people want to find you, it's at Cecile Richards, and um, you can get the book pretty much wherever books are sold. That's right. It's called Make Trouble, So, and that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And thank everyone for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and me at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to send a big thank you out to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my associate producer, Danielle Bruno, our fantastic sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. Go make trouble, people. Unstoppable. Cause every day there's something to survive. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.